So to start off just kind of setting the stage for this passage, I want you to think about the fact that there is no one more loving or kind or tender than Jesus is. No one. I mean, think about Jesus. Thousands of people were thronging for his attention, and he took time to sit on his lap, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, lay his hand on them, and pray for them. Beautiful tenderness and kindness. Or I think about when Jesus is on the cross, suffering horribly, and he sees his mother standing at the foot of the cross with John, and he says to John, would you take care of her for me? So even at that moment, great tenderness and kindness. Jesus was full of love and compassion. But what we're going to see in this passage this morning is that Jesus is more on the strong and bold and confrontational side. Now we see this often in the Gospels. He's not just tender and kind and compassionate. He called the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. You're a, you're a nest of snakes is what he called them. He called the religious leaders blind guides, hypocrites. And remember when he went into the temple and he overturned the temples of the money changers with coins flying all over and he drove them all out, all those who were trying to make a profit off of worship. So Jesus is not only just kind and tender, which he is beautifully, but he's also strong and bold and confrontational. And that's what we're going to see in our passage for this morning. And the reason Luke highlights this is because he has a crucial spiritual truth he wants to teach us. So I hope you have your Bibles there. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses 16 through 30 this morning. And this passage naturally divides up into four different sections. So what we're going to do is focus on each section one at a time, try to figure out what is Luke's main point in each of these sections, and then stand back and kind of put them all together and say, so what is the one main truth that Luke wants us to get from this passage? So let's start with verses 16 through 21. Let me read them, and let's be noticing what clues does Luke give here to help us understand what his main point is. Luke 4, starting in verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He, Jesus, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is from Isaiah chapter 61. And then Jesus reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, as I studied this section, I saw two main clues. The first is obvious. Jesus reads a prophecy about the Messiah. So when people met in the synagogue back in the, in the first century, 
the synagogue leader would often ask somebody there to read a passage of scripture and then to give a few words of explanation. And so Jesus was chosen to read and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus, prophet Isaiah. And remember that all through the Old Testament, God had been promising for thousands of years that he would send the Messiah. The Messiah would be fully man, born as a baby, as we read in Isaiah, and not just fully man, but also fully God. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us here on earth. And the Messiah was going to come to be punished, to pay for the sins of all who would trust him. So that we could be set free from our guilt, have the power of sin broken off of us, so that we could be released into the joy of knowing God, loving God, worshiping God, beholding our God. So for thousands of years, God's people had been waiting for the Messiah and anticipating the Messiah. And Jesus opens up the scroll and he picks Isaiah chapter 61, 1 and 2, which is a place that Isaiah, where Isaiah describes what the Messiah says about what his purpose is. Let's go through it a phrase at a time. Jesus starts off reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So the Messiah is going to be anointed with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that, remember back in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him bodily form like a dove to show that Jesus was fully anointed and empowered by the Spirit. And Jesus keeps reading. Because he, the Spirit of the Lord, has anointed me to proclaim good news, that's the word gospel, to the poor. And when Jesus uses the word poor here, he's talking about financially poor, and he's talking about emotionally poor. I mean, think of it, a lot of us are struggling with the virus, and there's, there's fear we're dealing with, there's worries they're dealing with, so emotionally poor, and spiritually poor. We're feeling far from God, we're feeling weak in faith, we're feeling tempted by sin. And so, this word poor covers all of us, financially poor, emotionally poor, spiritually poor, the Holy Spirit anointed the, will anoint the Messiah to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus keeps reading. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now this word liberty in Luke's gospel and, and Acts, which is also written by Luke, so often describes forgiveness, which is what the point is here. We are captives to sin, sin's guilt and sin's power. And sin has locked us away into prison cells so that we are not able to have the joy, the all-satisfying joy of knowing God. We're locked away in these prison cells of sin's guilt and sin's power, facing God's punishment forever. No joy, no relationship, no connection with God. But Jesus proclaims liberty to these captives. He breaks into the prison and he says, liberty, freedom for all you captives is here. Then Jesus keeps reading. The Messiah is going to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Now, our sin blinds us, so we are not able to see the beauty of God, the glory of Jesus. We don't see the truth because we don't want to see the truth. We're blinded by our, by our sin. 
but see the Messiah. This is so beautiful. By paying for the sins of all who trust him, by being punished in the place of all who will trust him, he purchases mercy to bring healing to our spiritual eyes so that we can see God. We can see the glory of Jesus. And Jesus keeps reading. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. So the Messiah doesn't just break into the prison and proclaim liberty and freedom. He pulls open the cell doors. He unlocks the chains that's on us. He says, you're free, go. And so he actually proclaims and he delivers. He sets at liberty those who are oppressed. And then all of this involves to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is all God's favor. God's grace, God's mercy, God's compassion. The, the Messiah was sent so that we could be forgiven for our sins and freed into the joy of knowing God. And that's all God's favor. God's favor, God's favor. And so the Messiah would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's the passage that Jesus reads. So the first clue to understand what Luke's point is in this first section is that Jesus reads a prophecy about the Messiah. So just think about all these people in the synagogue listening to Jesus. And they're hearing this amazing description of what the Messiah, how the Messiah would describe his purpose and what he would do. And they would be thinking, won't this be wonderful when the Messiah comes? Won't this be amazing when the Messiah comes? And there's a second clue in this section. Look at verses 20 and 21. Notice the drama that Luke emphasizes. Verse 20. And he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll of Isaiah, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, can you feel that? Jesus has just read a powerful prophecy about the Messiah, talking about the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me, Jesus said, to preach good news. And then when he finishes, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and then he sits down on a chair, which is probably in front of everybody, because now they're expecting him to explain the passage he's just read. And every eye is fixed on him, wondering, what's he going to say? What's he going to say about this passage? Every eye is fixed on him. And then verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the second clue. Jesus proclaims he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah who was prophesied 700 years before in the book of Isaiah. Jesus proclaims he is the Messiah. Now, this is really important to notice because you may have heard various uh, scholars on television talk shows, or you may have heard professors at university say that, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be the Messiah. That's just something that the church came up with later. But here it is, plain as day. Jesus proclaims that he is the Messiah. So I just want to pause for a second and, and have you think about this. What do you think about Jesus? Do you agree that he is the Messiah? Or do you think, well, he was just a good teacher, he's just maybe one of many prophets? No, no, no. Jesus said, I am the Messiah. And if you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, God in the flesh, sent from God, the only way we can be forgiven for our sins and restored to God, that will change everything in your life. So do you agree that Jesus is the Messiah? 
You have every reason to agree based on what Luke tells us here. Jesus is the Messiah. So imagine that you were there in the audience. For thousands of years, your people had been longing for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah, and praying for the Messiah. And Jesus has just read this astonishing prophecy about the Messiah, and then as everyone's eyes in the synagogue are fixed right on him, he says, today, 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 right now, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I am the Messiah. So putting these two clues together, here's, I think, the main point to this first section. It's very simple. Jesus announces that he's the Messiah. That's the first section, okay? Now let's go to the second section of this passage. One verse, verse 22. Very important verse to understand what's going on here. Let's read it. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him. Everybody there in the synagogue, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now notice that word all. All spoke well of him. Luke is emphasizing everyone in the synagogue is happy about Jesus being the Messiah. Everyone is saying good things about him. Everyone's amazed at his gracious words. They're saying, this is amazing. Can you believe it? They're jostling their neighbor. He's just said he's the Messiah. This is unbelievable. But now, if, if they're all happy about Jesus being the Messiah, why do they ask, is not this Joseph's son? The reason I raise that question is that some people think that this is a negative, critical comment. Like, how can he claim to be the Messiah? He's just Joseph's son. But that doesn't fit the fact that Luke has just told us that all spoke well of him and all were marveling at his gracious words. So I think this is a compliment. I think this is a positive statement. They're just really happy to think that the Messiah was the son of somebody that we know. He's our hometown boy. He's the Messiah. He's from our city. This is an amazing thing. So putting all this together, I think the main point of verse 22 is very simply this. Everyone's happy about Jesus being the Messiah. Okay, so the first point, we got verses 16 through 21. Jesus proclaims that he's the Messiah. And then the second section, verse 22, everyone's happy that Jesus is the Messiah. But now look at what happens next. Verses 23 through 27. What's the main point? Let's read it through and notice what Luke emphasizes. And he, Jesus, said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he goes on. He tells two stories from the Old Testament. He says, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, didn't re rain for three and a half years, and a great famine came over all the lands, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, the city Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And then here's the second story from the Old Testament, verse 27. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Now what's going on here? I saw three clues for this section. First, Jesus says they will end up demanding that he prove himself to them. He says they'll quote the proverb, physician, heal yourself. It's like saying words are cheap. Prove who you are by your actions. Do some miracles to show us you're the Messiah. Then second, Jesus says they're going to end up rejecting him. That's the point of verse 24, where Jesus says no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He's saying, you will not end up accepting me. You're going to end up rejecting me. Now, now why? What's going to change them from being happy that he's claimed to be the Messiah to rejecting him? Why the change? I think the answer is in the third clue. Jesus explains that God's saving work is not just for Israel. God's saving work is for Israel and all the nations, every nation, tongue, and tribe. No one race is better than any other race. And to make this point, he quotes, or he mentions, describes two stories from the Old Testament. Let me just give you some more details so you can understand what's, what the point of these stories is. The first story is from 1 Kings chapter 17. There'd been no rain for three and a half years. Great famine covered the land. And there were many widows in Israel at the time who would have been struggling to find food to feed themselves and their children. It was a tragic time of great suffering and great hardship. But Jesus says that even though there were many struggling widows in Israel, Elijah was sent to none of them. He was sent to the town of Zarephath, which is in Gentile territory. So Elijah was sent to a Gentile, non-Israelite, non-Jewish widow. And this widow had only a little bit of like wheat flour in a jar and a little bit of oil in a jug. That's all she had left for her and her son. So she and her son were on the brink of starvation. And Elijah proclaims, until the, the famine's over, you will never run out of wheat flour in your jar or oil in your jug. God will miraculously keep providing for you. And that's exactly what happened. Every day, there was wheat flour in the jar. There was oil in the jug. She and her son survived the famine. Now remember the point here. Many widows in Israel, but Elisha was sent to a Gentile widow. Second story from 2 Kings 5. Jesus says there were many lepers in Israel. Now, if you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, have you seen that? You can get pictures of just how horrifying leprosy is. And there were many lepers suffering terribly in Israel. But Jesus says none of them were healed. The only leper Elisha the prophet healed was Naaman, who was a Syrian, which meant he was a Gentile. So I think Jesus' point in these two stories is to make it crystal clear that Jesus' saving work is not just for Israel. Jesus' saving work is for everyone, for Gentiles, every nation, every tongue, every tribe. And of course, Jesus' point is that God is sending him as the Messiah to minister, not just to Israel, but to everyone. So I think the main point of verses 23 through 27 is Jesus says 
that these people in the synagogue are going to reject him because his salvation includes Gentiles. So here's the flow that Luke has us going so far. Verses 16 through 21, Jesus proclaims, I'm the Messiah. Verse 22, everybody's happy that he's the Messiah. Verses 23 through 27, Jesus says, these people are going to reject him because his, Jesus' salvation includes Gentiles. Now, with that in mind, last section in this passage, verses 28 to 30. What is the main point of 28 to 30? Start with verse 28. When they heard these things, all the things Jesus had just said, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. I mean, this is shocking. A few moments ago, they were all happy that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Now, a few moments later, they are filled with wrath. All of them. Keep reading verse 29. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They wanted to kill him. But passing through their midst, he went away. Okay, so the people have completely changed. They were rejoicing that their hometown boy is the Messiah, and now they're so angry they're trying to kill him. Why? What made them change? It's the two stories that Jesus told from the Old Testament. Jesus went out of his way to show them that his salvation included Gentiles. He's there in the synagogue saying, now, now listen, my ministry as Messiah includes Gentiles. And Jesus did this. He went out of his way to, to point this out because he knew they thought that they were racially superior to the Gentiles. They thought that they're the Jews. They're God's special people. All the other races are way down there. We are the superior ones. They had racial pride. And so Jesus intentionally goes out of his way to say, I'm the Messiah and I don't acknowledge, I don't appreciate, I hate racial pride. Now, I don't want to imply that every Jewish person has or had racial pride, not at all. Remember, remember Simeon, we loved Simeon a few weeks ago. Simeon, here's what he prophesied about the Messiah back in Luke chapter 2 verse 32. Simeon said, the Messiah will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Hey, Gentiles, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Yes, the Messiah is going to bring salvation to the Jewish people. And yes, he's going to bring salvation to the Gentiles because all races are equal. There's no racial superiority. There's no place for racial pride. So not every Jewish person had racial pride. But Jesus' townspeople did. And Jesus knew that this was in their hearts. And he saw right through their happiness about him being the Messiah. He knew that the reason they were happy that he was the Messiah was because he thought, they thought, excuse me, the reason he knew that they were happy about him being the Messiah was because they thought he was going to affirm them in their racial pride. What they loved was racial pride, racial superiority. And well, we'll love the Messiah, we'll love any Messiah who will affirm us in our racial pride and superiority. And that's why Jesus told them these stories. Because these stories dead-on confronted, opposed, destroyed racial pride. 
And as a result, they were filled with wrath because racial pride was their idol. It's what they loved. And they will not love, they will hate, they will kill any so-called Messiah who opposes their racial pride. So I think the main point of verses 28 through 30 is that the people are furious at Jesus and try to kill him. So let's put this all together. Now we want to kind of pull back. We've seen four different sections. So let's get the flow of thought through these four sections and say, okay, what's the, what's the big overall point then? So first section, verses 16 through 21, Jesus announces, I'm the Messiah. Second section, verse 22, everybody's happy that Jesus is the Messiah. Verses 23 through 27, Jesus says, you're going to reject me because I'm opposed to your racial pride. And then verses 28 through 30, the people are furious at Jesus and try to kill him. Okay, so I, here's how I try to put all these together. I think the main point of this passage is that Jesus opposes everyone who loves him, everyone who's happy about him, not because of him, but because they really want something else from him. Namely, affirm me in my racial pride, affirm me in my idolatries, affirm me in my sin. I'm looking to you, Jesus, for something else. So let's just think about this a bit more deeply. So these people in the synagogue, they loved Jesus. They were happy about Jesus. But they didn't love Jesus. They weren't happy about Jesus because they wanted Jesus, but because they wanted to keep their racial pride. And they thought Jesus would help them keep their racial pride. They thought Jesus was going to support them in their racial pride. When he opposed their racial pride then, they immediately stopped loving him, which shows that what they loved was not Jesus, but their racial pride. Think about John chapter 6. I was talking to my wife, Jan, about this yesterday. And uh, she reminded me about a verse in John 6 where Jesus says, remember people had just experienced Jesus miraculously multiplying bread and fish, and they got, they got a free meal, and then they're still trying to track him down. He says, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And Jesus' point is, you're not seeking me because you've seen my glory displayed in my signs and you want to behold my glory. It's not that you're seeking me, it's that you're seeking food. So exact same thing. In Capernaum, they were seeking Jesus because they wanted racial superiority. In John 6, they're seeking Jesus because they want food. In both cases, their seeking of Jesus was sinful because it wasn't for Jesus. It was for something they hoped Jesus would give them. Now, we need to talk about this because this is something that we can all face. It, it's not enough to just be happy about Jesus. It's not enough to love Jesus because it's possible to be happy about Jesus and to love Jesus for sinful reasons because we want something we think Jesus will give to us. So we might love Jesus, like the people in Capernaum, because we think he might affirm our racial pride, or because we think he might give us health, or because we might think he might give us a, a great job. But see, if that's why we're loving Jesus, because we think he's gonna give us those things, then we're not loving Jesus. We're loving those things. Just like the people in Capernaum, we're loving their racial pride, or we, we might love health, or we might love the job. We're not loving Jesus for who Jesus is. We're loving Jesus for what we think he's going to give to us. And see, the problem is then when Jesus doesn't give us what we are wanting from him, well, we'll stop loving him. Because the only reason we loved him 
was because of what we thought he was going to give us. But see, we have to understand, following Jesus means loving Jesus for Jesus Christ. It means seeing that he is the prize. And that's just right. If you stop and think, I mean, Jesus Christ is the most glorious reality in the universe. Who he is in himself, his power and his love, and he's being willing to become the God-man, the one who went to the cross to pay for our sins, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who has all glory, all authority has been given to him. Jesus Christ is ablaze with beauty and majesty and glory and love and power and justice and compassion, and there is no reality, no entity, no being more glorious than Jesus because the glory of God radiates through Jesus because he is the image of the invisible God. That's who Jesus is. And so Jesus is the infinite value of the universe. And so we should want Jesus, not anything else. He's the prize. He's our treasure. He's the only joy that will satisfy us now and forever. And so following Jesus means loving Jesus, not because of what he's going to give, but because of the joy we have in knowing him. That's what this is all about. But if we want, if we love Jesus because we really want something else, then we're in a dangerous place spiritually. So Grace Church, I just want us to think about this. This is such an important question. What are you, what, what is the reason for why you are loving Jesus? Why do you love Jesus? We need to think about this question because if you love Jesus for some reason other than Jesus, then you are in a dangerous place spiritually. And if there's not a change, if you don't repent, if your heart isn't changed by God's power so that you, you love Jesus more than anything, if you're not changed, then you are going to continue to be in a dangerous place spiritually. And that could risk eternity. So Grace Church, why do you love Jesus? And this is a question that I try to ask myself regularly. And, and one of the reasons is because I'm, I mean, I'm a paid pastor and that's kind of a dangerous thing because my livelihood involves teaching the Bible and seeking to shepherd God's people. And so I have to ask myself regularly, do I love the Bible because I meet God in the Bible or is it just because this pays my bills? Do I love the Bible? Do I love God's people because Jesus purchased this flock with your own blood? Or is it because, well, this is my job? I have to ask that question regularly. I try to, and, and I think we all should ask that question regularly. Why do we love Jesus? Really, truthfully, as you search your heart, why? Now, I think if we're honest, we'll all admit that there's other things that are vying, that are competing with our love for Jesus. There's other things that can sneak in. Yes, you might say, I, I, I love Jesus more than anything. I want to love him. I know I should. That's how I want my heart to be. But to be honest, this last week, there's been other things. I've started to love something else more than Jesus and love Jesus just because I was hoping he might give me something else. So none of us is going to answer that question, why do you love Jesus? Like, well, I just love him for himself all the time perfectly. That's, that's heaven. That's not here yet. We're battling here. And so I think if you're honest, you'll think through, yeah, there's this, and there's this, and there's this. There's these other things that I, I can be tempted to love besides more than Jesus. 
Now, if that's true, if you can identify some of those things, then Jesus has some very good news for you. And it's in this passage right here in Isaiah 61. It's what he quotes from Isaiah 61. We saw that Jesus preaches good news to the poor. Now, if you look at your heart and you see that there's other things that you are easily loving more than Jesus Christ himself, then that shows that, that you are poor spiritually. All right? But Jesus preaches good news to those who are poor spiritually. And so the good news is that Jesus has good news for you right now, today, about this. Jesus also proclaims liberty to the captives. This is good news, okay? When your heart is caught up with something else, whether it's racial pride or you know, you're, you're following Jesus because you hope he's going to help you get married someday or get a great big promotion or something, then you're captive to those things. You're captive to racial pride. You're captive to the idea of marriage, as wonderful a blessing as that can be, but you're captive to it. It's become an idol, or you're captive to getting this great job, and you need to be set free from that. And Jesus proclaims liberty to the captives because he paid for sin. As you come to him and trust him and cry out to him, He'll proclaim liberty, forgiveness to you. You will be forgiven for the guilt of that sin. So Grace Church, turn to him right now. Trust him. Cry out to him to forgive you. Jesus also gives sight to the blind. This is such good news. He will heal your spiritual eyes. So when you open up the Bible, you'll once again see his majesty, the glory of Jesus, the beauty, the reality of Jesus Christ. You need to have your eyes spiritualized, healed, because if you're loving something else more than Jesus, you're not seeing things clearly. You need that spiritual vision healed. And so ask Jesus, open my eyes, heal my spiritual sight. Sin is blinding me. Forgive me. I'm just not seeing your glory anymore. Help me. He will. And then finally, Jesus sets at liberty those who are oppressed. By forgiving you, by healing your spiritual blindness, your heart will be set free. Freed from being caught up in those other things. You see Jesus in all of his glory. You feel Jesus in all of his beauty once again. Your heart is filled with the greatest joy in the universe, the all-satisfying joy of worshiping God in the person of Jesus Christ. So you will love him for him. He really will be your prize and your treasure. So Grace Church, why do you love Jesus? I'm just praying that God's working this morning and that the result of this is that there will be a purifying of our love for Jesus, a laying aside of idols, of other things we can love him in order to get so that we are just captured afresh with the beauty, the person, the glory of Jesus. So Grace Church, let's press in. Let's time to take time to pray these things through. Let's seek to love Jesus, not because of anything else we want him to give us, but to get Jesus, because he is our all-satisfying prize. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would move in every home now that's listening to this, that you would increase even more the work of your Holy Spirit purchased through Jesus. And I pray that you would Show us, Lord, right now, show us even more clearly what things we tend to put before Jesus, what we are pursuing Jesus in order to really get, what things we're loving Jesus because we really love them more. God, I pray that you'd show us what those things are right now. And we praise you that you have good news for us. And that as we confess and repent, you will proclaim 
liberty, forgiveness. You will heal our spiritual sight so that we once again see you are our all-surpassing treasure. How could I possibly be loving those other things more and that you will actually free us. We will be liberated from those things so we are captured and filled and satisfied once again in the joy of knowing you as our prize as our treasure. And Lord, for anyone listening to this who's not yet trusted Christ, let today be the day when they are set free, when their spiritual eyes are healed, when they are freed from sin's guilt and sin's power and brought into the joy of knowing you through Jesus, their Savior, their Lord. I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.